Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at www.oalaig.org where you'll find three separate speaker feeds with over 400 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. I would now like to introduce our speaker tonight, Aaron. Okay, hello everybody. My name is Aaron, and I am a compulsive overeater. Um, to qualify, I've been in program for a little over one year. Um, my abstinence date is February 1st of 2012. In that time, I have worked my way um, up through the fourth step. I'm currently in the process of giving my fifth step over to my sponsor. I have I have given away uh, 68 and a half pounds that I know about. But I only weigh myself on the 15th of every month because that's about how often I need to check in and the rest of the time I need to be living my life. Um, My abstinence is no eating after dinner. I eat three meals a day and I eat two snacks and that's it. And the rest of the time I live my life. My food plan um, is, unless there's a compelling reason not to, I have a reasonable breakfast, I have a salad for lunch, and I have a salad for dinner, and I have two fruit snacks. And that's it. And if you had told me years ago that I would be able to live on that, I would have told you you were crazy. I have one of those special metabolisms. I'm a large man who was bred to uh, ride horses and and chop trees in northern England. And I need to eat a lot of meat, potatoes, and bread or I will die. So... um, I'm really grateful for the program. I'm amazed at how much my life and my relationships and my outlook on life has changed over the course of the past year. So to explain that, what it was like. Um, Overall in my life, I started getting heavy when I was about nine years old, pretty much when puberty hit. It's a great time to get heavy. Um, I came from a family that had a lot of weight in it, my, my mother was heavy, my brother was heavy, my grandfather was heavy. And the family lesson about weight was get used to it. It really was. It was, this is what we're like. I remember once when I was very young asking my grandfather if I could have uh, some of the lemon cake that he kept in the house to have, um, you know, as his special dessert. I said, can I have a piece of that? And I got a two and a half hour lecture on you can do whatever you want in life, but there are going to be consequences. So yes, you can eat that, but it's going to turn straight into fat. On the surface, that sounds like a great education to be given, but somehow I took the message from him that we were heavy and we're going to stay heavy, and that's the way it's going to be. Um, I remember receiving the message that that was my lot in life and and it generated a lot of fear for me that I still deal with in my life. I came to believe that I was just one of the unlucky ones and that I might find relationships in life as long as I had a really great personality. But I was never going to be seen as equal to others. I was always going to be working at it. I was always going to be trying to live up to some other standard. Um, what my eating habits looked like when I came into program, and I would never have admitted this when I walked in the door. If you had met me back then, I would have said, oh, I eat fine, but I just, I don't know what's going on. Um, 
I would wake up in the morning, and my goal in life was to wake up uh, before my favorite fast food restaurant stopped serving breakfast. If I could get up before that happened, it was a good day. And um, I would I would get in the car, and I would race over, and I would get two breakfasts. And they would be gone by the time I got back to my house. Because... I wanted to make sure that if I ran into my family members and they were going out to breakfast when I was coming back, that I could go out to eat with them and they wouldn't know that I just had, you know, two full-size breakfasts in the car on the way there. I would never have admitted that. I never consciously planned out, I have to make sure they don't know what's going on. But man, that, that trash from the fast food place found its way into the garbage very quickly as I got out of the car. It was like a little dance. It was all very smooth. I would go out to breakfast, negotiating with myself the entire way, saying, I'm just going to have coffee. I'm just going to have coffee and toast. I might have two eggs and toast. I might, you know, I'll get two eggs and I'll order whatever somebody else orders. I'm going to get my favorite thing. That's how it went. And after eating with everybody, I would be telling myself, I'm not going to have lunch. I'm just going to go straight on till dinner. But when I see 12 on the clock, my brain says it's lunchtime. So at lunch, I would be negotiating, I'm just going to have lunch, and I'm just going to have a light one, I'm just going to have a salad, I'm just going to have this, I'm just going to have that, I'm going to get my favorite thing, and I just won't have dinner. By the time it was halfway to dinner, I would be in the car from one friend's place to another friend's place, or from work to somewhere else, and I would have to stop for a snack, which for me was two value meals from another fast food restaurant. I had to, okay, large man, have to chop down trees. Um, <laughs> And then I would go out to dinner with other people. And then, I mean, I would tell you as I looked back on my day that the only meals that I was metabolizing were the ones I had with other people. And I had eaten what they ate, so I don't know why I'm getting heavy. Um, and then I would head home. I mean, I, I well, I wouldn't head home. I, I had kind of a, a night owl existence. I wanted to keep things going. And if I could talk somebody into an 11 p.m. late repast at, you know, a diner somewhere, it was great. But I do know that I did not go to bed unless I was full. If that meant that I went out to a restaurant alone or that I ate my way through whatever was left in the kitchen or that I had a late night meal with a friend, I was not going to go to bed hungry. Um, Bread didn't survive in my house. It's particularly sourdough bread. Like, that is the one thing I cannot touch. If there is a loaf of sourdough bread in my house, there is not a loaf of sourdough bread in my house. There isn't. It just, I, I, I would be, I would have half of it gone by the time I was done unpacking the groceries. Um, so, I, that's what it was like for me. I would get from one end of the day to the other in constant negotiation, and it's constantly doing math. It's constantly distracting myself. That's really how I see it. It's one of the reasons when my sponsor said, don't weigh yourself, I kind of leapt at it. It was like, yes, I want to get out of the math. I'm tired of, you know, when I came into program, I actually had the advice from my therapist to track my calories in a calorie counter, but I've done the commercial diets where they teach you the points. I've done the diets where they teach you how to count. I am the king at having a 100-calorie breakfast, a 100-calorie lunch, so that I can have the 2,300-calorie dinner. I love that. I wanted the binge at some point in my day. I, you know, I was not going to go to bed hungry, basically. And if you're living your life like that, if you're not doing anything with your day, you can understand how the last thing you need to do before falling asleep is numb out. Because I, I could feel it. But when I stopped... When I, when I put the food down, I suddenly felt that at the end of the day, I got this terror 
That was what it happened. So, I'm going to come back to that in a second. Um, what happened was, at 30 years of age, I had no meaningful relationships in my life. I had no family. I had family, but I didn't have a family of my own. I didn't have uh, friends. I wasn't employed. And so, I got the opportunity to run away with the circus. And I took it. It is... If you want to not live according to program, it is a fantastically addictive lifestyle. It literally is. I was in a different city every seven days. There, it, it, it was. I was a stagehand. We put the set up. We took the set down. Some of my days were 22 hours long. If you're up and constantly moving for 22 hours, you can go eat 6,000 calories and your body will not notice. And that's exactly what we did. And uh, I picked up smoking again, and I just live a completely insane lifestyle. And knowing that I had to come and talk about my life, I looked up some of the things that I sent home to my family while I was at the circus. And in one of them, I specifically said, I I was miserable. I was terribly depressed. I mean, it's a progressive illness that we have. Once you start down the road, it just gets worse and worse because the the highs stop working. The food stops working. That's really what happens when we come here. So, but I I just sent home. I have no relationships. You know, I have no relationships that I value. I I stand on the train as it goes, goes from one place to the next, wanting to jump off it. I was miserable. And the way God helped me get out of that was I wound up being told that I was going to be a father. And one of the things I've noticed about my life is that I frequently start doing things for others and then I get to keep doing them for myself. Um, I came home to raise a child. And in having to do that, I had to look at how I was raised, what I did and did not want to pass on. And I had really one goal in life. I did not want this small child to ever feel ashamed. That was the only thing. I wanted to make sure that she knew she could be angry, she could be happy, she could be sad, she could have all of her feelings. And she never had to run away from them and they were all okay. And in doing that, I realized that I didn't have that for myself. I didn't know how to eat. I was terrified of feeding a baby. Like, the baby would cry and they'd say, feed it. And I said, I don't want to feed it too much. It'll get too used to it. Um, They eat every two hours. It's very weird. Um, Then I found out that I was not actually the father of that child. And that's when it hit me that I had taken my eyes off of my life. That's really what had happened. I could not believe the situation that I found myself in. And it was my definition of unmanageability. My entire life had become completely insane, and I didn't know how, except that I just wasn't living it. I was kind of hanging out with my life, but I wasn't living my life. So, I came here. And I actually... What it's like now, I actually think... I was lucky in knowing that I was crazy when I walked in the room. Because that's really the biggest part of the steps, I think, is is having to realize that, you know, there's a saying in a way, we come for the vanity, but we stay for the sanity. No, no, I came for the sanity. I came to get my life in order. And 
I was totally willing to do whatever I was told, to try anything to get my life back. Um, it, I started coming to meetings, kind of drifting in and out. And I come from a background of theater, I come from a background of acting, and so one of my ways of, of operating is I want to hang in the back, I want to observe, I want to see what the room is like, and then I will start to build the character that will fit in. Um, so as I'm hanging out in the rooms before I had a sponsor, before I had any abstinence, people would say, uh, you know, my sponsor's telling me to raise my hand, my sponsor's telling me to talk and share in meetings, and I thought, oh, okay, well, maybe that's what I'm supposed to hear, so I went to a meeting one night. And I raised my hand during the sharing portion for the first time, and I got called on. And I said, uh, I get the diet, I get the uh, psychological, spiritual work, I just don't understand why I'm going to do all of this work and then give God the credit for it. (laughs) Not a single person laughed the first time I said it, and I think it's because I said it without a single trace of irony. I, I was serious. That was, for me, the stopping point. Why God? Um, nobody laughed nobody thanked me for my share afterwards (laughs) Uh, complete and utter failure to perform was how I took it I went home and I just laid on the couch and I played video games and and I remember uh, someone coming in and saying what are you doing and I said I'm sitting here hating myself because I said something and people didn't like it Um, and it wasn't one of those things I say that's designed for people to not like it so I didn't come back to meetings for six weeks, and the food kept getting out of control, and I kept being miserable, and I kept not paying attention to any of the problems in my life, so none of them were going away. It is absolutely true what they say. Um, If you, you know, you have a problem and then you eat over it, you now have two problems. If you're lucky, you only have two problems. Um, But when I finally came back, I finally started to... I got a sponsor, and I asked him what to do. He said, well, first get some abstinence. And it was late January at that point, and I decided that my abstinence date was going to be February 2nd. And he said, why February 2nd? It's, it's towards the end of January at this point. And I said, because I, want, I, I decided that's going to be my little poetic statement. It's going to be January 2nd, Groundhog's Day. That'll be the day I live over and over and over <laughs> again like the movie. And he says, that's good writing. Why don't you just stop now? <laughs> And I did the next day. I mean, for me, it was getting through the night. I could make it all the way to to about 10 p.m. And for the first couple nights, it was literally going to sleep at 9 that stopped me from eating at 10 p.m. And then having to get up at 5 in the morning. But I finally put the food down. And that brings me back to where I left off. When I put the food down, what it's like now, I started to figure out that I have a lot of feelings that aren't hunger that I used to call hunger. And these days, I have a much wider vocabulary for my feelings. I have angry. I have frustrated. I have disappointed. I have happy. I have excited. I, I, I kind of sort of have a distinction between anxious and anticipating, but not much of one. Um, but I have all of those because I don't call them all hunger anymore. Recently in my program, one of the things that I found really helpful is I I no longer allow myself in my own head to say I want. I don't I don't stop at I want ice cream or I want cake or I want I I say okay <coughs> wanting is nice but there's an emotion. It's not you know it's not I want to do this or I want to have that it's I'm feeling lonely. 
And the old way I used to deal with my loneliness was eat. Or I'm feeling angry. And the way I used to deal with my anger is eat. Um, And that's a big deal. Um, So, um, one of the biggest things I've noticed, I've only been in program a year. Um, and, you know, keep that in mind. I, I, I don't, I've not worked my way through the entire 12 steps. I totally believe in the 12 steps because I've seen them change my own life. Um, I also completely believe in the tools and it's so important to get a sponsor that you, that has something that you want. That has, has, you know, you look at them and you say, I would like to have that in my life. And then do what they say. That for me is the, is the biggest, like, if I had any advice to give a newcomer, do what you're told. Try it. Quite literally. I mean, I have talked to people that I've seen now leave program. And it usually starts with, I'm doing this thing, but I'm not telling my sponsor about it. And that's the point where I just go, then you're done. You know, the rest of it's just a scheduling problem. How do you schedule the meetings out of your life? Um, because literally, I, from where I'm sitting, I, I, I don't know. If, I, I don't know if I've ever heard anybody talk about this, but sponsorship is a sponsee-driven activity. They, they don't. They don't chase you. You come to them and you say, "I don't have this thing. I want it. You have it. Help me out." And that's it. And if you're if you're not asking, you know, it's kind of pointless to ask for guidance if you're not telling them the whole story. They can't give you the answer that you're you're looking for. And at that point, you are taking what they call taking your will back. You're deciding that you you not only control, you know, you control your actions and you control the shape of the world and you control all the problems. I'm wandering around a bit. I apologize. Um, I totally believe in in the meetings and the fellowship. I really believe in outreach calls. Uh, before I started program, I mean, I wouldn't call the people that I met in meetings. And now I have no problem picking up uh, a sheet that I get from one meeting that I go to. I will call strangers. And it's actually really comforting to be able to call somebody up and you tell them, I'm an overeater, and they go, oh, okay, how's it going today? And you can talk about what's going on today. It's very difficult. I, I was amazed when I go out into the world, um, I, I carry my chips on my keychain. And I'm always surprised that, you know, the people I work with, they have no idea what it means. I would have, I would have honestly expected with, with the, that somewhere someone would know what a 12 chip means. But no, there are places where they don't know what the 12 steps are. They don't know what the chip, chips mean. And, it, you know, you have to stay in touch with the people that do in order to stay in this program. That's what it's really about. It's about having people to talk to about these issues. You know, we're looking for solutions to problems that other people don't necessarily have. Um... Another thing I've heard in the rooms recently that I, I found really useful is this idea that, uh, and it's in the big book, and it, it's very important in, in the mothership program, but it's that idea that we don't respond to food the way other people respond to food. So that once we start a binge or once we start having our trigger foods, we cannot stop. We can't feel settled. We can't feel calm about it once that happens. We have to, like, kind of keep going down the rabbit hole. 
But our, our, you know, every day we wake up, we have the option to not start. And that is where the spiritual program comes in. What am I going to do if I don't pick up the food today? What am I going to do that helps me? Um, I, I have over the years, built up an addictive personality within myself. And I have put a lot of time into it. I have um, trained it. I've trained my brain that uh, when I feel bad, it gets sugar, and it gets bread, and it gets cheese. And nowadays, when it wants those things, when it wants the high, when it doesn't want what's going on right now, It says, hmm, how do I make Aaron give me that stuff? Well, he normally goes to it when he feels like crap. So let's start making Aaron feel like crap. And I start getting my brain yelling at me. My brain has a very great wealth of knowledge about me. (laughs) It knows where my triggers are. It knows where my, my sensitive, vulnerable areas are. And it starts telling me lies. It really does. That, that's something that I've noticed. I can go into a headspace where I'm telling myself my own story in a very harsh, angry way that is not true. And that's when I need to reach out and I need to call somebody. I need to say, this is what I'm going through. And they can tell me that that's not what's really happening. You know, my brain is lying to me because my brain wants to kill me. Because it would rather just have as many highs as it could possibly get between now and the time it's done. And it doesn't care about anything. It doesn't care about my goals. It doesn't care about whether I'm happy or joyous or free. So I'm going to stare at the clock again. Okay. So um, I guess the last thing that I want to talk about is more and more in my program these days. I'm finding that my struggle is believing that I am deserving of love, success, and happiness. That's been, it has come up in my step writing so many times. I have written down the phrase, uh, you know, if you're not going to win an Academy Award or get a Nobel Prize, what the hell good are you? If you're not going to be awesome... You know, if you're not going to be a millionaire, why should anybody spend time with you? This is one of the lies that my brain tells me. And it's one of the reasons that when I come to do, uh, when I do shares and when I do speaking, I don't prepare. Because it's healthier for me to try and just be here in the room with all of you. And try to be authentic. Um, going all the way back to where I started, my family uh, raised me to believe that I am responsible for how other people treat me. They raised me to believe that I am responsible for the whole mood of the room. And if I sit down to write the world's perfect share, and I try to come in here and deliver it, I, I won't succeed. And what I will do instead is spend an awful lot of time trying to mind read each and every person in this room. I'll get so inside everybody else's business and everybody else's head trying to figure out what what I can do to to live up to them or to get from them what I need. And 
putting that down has been almost as important as, as the food. And just realizing that I'm coming in here to share my experience, share my strength, share my hope, um, and to meet other people who are, are struggling just like I am. I haven't worked a perfect program. My program has progressed as I've gone along. Uh, you make your, when you start out, you make your abstinence something that you can do. And when I started out, it was literally just keep it to three meals a day, and I don't care how big they are. And I ate restaurant meals. The only thing I did limit myself to was it all had to come on one plate. So if the bread came on the second plate, I wouldn't have the bread. Um, and I did that for a while until I was ready to start making the portion smaller, until I was ready to start eating different choices, until I was ready to start making all of my own food and carrying it with me and weighing and measuring. And that from it is progress, not perfection. You know, part of that same whole thing. If I if I'm starting out from this idea that I don't deserve love and I have to earn it, I have to. When somebody comes by and they say, "Hey, don't you want you know recovery?" I sit down and I sculpt the perfect diet, and it would be impossible for anybody to go from zero to the perfect diet. But that's the mark I'm going to set for myself. Instead of making a little progress each day and getting a little better and getting a little more serenity and a little more sobriety as I move ahead. Um, recently in my life, this expressed itself by, I, I had somebody give me some disappointing news that I didn't want to hear. I mean, it, it, I was hurt to the point where I couldn't sleep that night. And the next day, uh, I'd been talking with people for a long time about maybe we want to start like a, a hiking meeting or a running meeting or, or some kind of get-together where we do physical activity because physical activity has been a big part of my recovery. I've been from, gone from somebody who you know, was a smoker and laughed at people who wanted to go out and do sports together to running my first 5K earlier this year. It's been a major part of my recovery, and I really, I really think it helps. Um, but it wasn't until I got this really big piece of disappointing news, and I just, because of program, I... Found my, I, I, I say a prayer every single morning and every single night, and part of the prayer is um, keep me from heartache as I throw myself the harder into helping others. Help me think of their needs and to work for them. So there I was, uh, feeling bad about myself, and with no negotiation. And with no, like, worrying about the logistics, I took out my phone and I texted every person whose number I have in my phone from OA. And I said, I'm going on a hike this afternoon. You know, if you're free, please join me. And people showed up. You know, I mean, that was the biggest thing. People, and they didn't just show up. They showed up and said thank you. They were like, oh, I was thinking about going for a hike, but I couldn't find anybody to go with. You know, so it works. Saying a prayer every single day changes your behavior. You know, working the steps changes your behavior. Um, as long as, you know, it works as long as you work it. So, um, I have that's Okay, uh, that's it. That's all I have. Thank you all very much for that. Uh, are there any questions? Um, so the question is, can I share a little bit about uh, how isolation works in my disease and how the program works against my isolation? Um, yeah, so um, 
Isolation is a big part of my story. Uh, just going back to the circus, I, I, uh, we lived, I lived in a room that was five by six by seven. We called them coffin rooms. Um, we, I, I, didn't, I didn't go to parties that they held. Uh, I didn't associate with other people. Um, pretty much if I wasn't actively working, I was in my room eating and, and watching TV, uh, watching uh, shows. Probably the biggest, I mean, meetings and the phone definitely do it. And um, sharing in meetings is, is, is really important because people have to get to know you. Um, you have to put up the flag and say, here's where I am. And other people that, that have some hope to share can come and find you. Um, it's just... Uh, when we isolate, we make it very easy for the addict voice to tell us those lies. We make it really simple for the entire uh, shape of the world to be redrawn. I have a fairly normal, I guess, dating history. But when I am hurt and eating, my brain can convince me I have never been on a date. I have never had a conversation with a member of the opposite sex. Nobody's ever wanted you. Nobody ever will. I mean, I, and if I'm isolating, my brain gets really good at that. You know, it, it, it runs the show. It tells the story. Um, and you can lose. I mean, I, you can't isolate because we can't trust our own brains. We can't trust our own eyes and ears half the time. One of my favorite conversations that I have these days, and I, I realize I've had it a lot in my life, is when I, I, I'm talking to someone and they're telling me their boss said something mean to them. And I say, wow, you know, your boss really chewed you out. What exactly did your boss say? And they repeat it. And, and, the, and I go, well, it sounds like they're trying to be constructive. Maybe they worded it a little poorly. And the person always comes back with, well, I felt like they were putting me down. And that's what our brain likes to do. Our brain likes to make our feelings the facts of the situation. And we can't, you know, we have to reach out to others and let other people say, yeah, I, I like to stick with the feelings too because if I can ride those feelings long enough, I, I get chocolate cake. <laughs> um, but since we've decided we don't want the chocolate cake, this is just going to go, this is just going to be really rough on you until you decide not to have it. So, you know, you have to share your story with others in order to combat that. Um... I, uh, the question is whether I'm, I'm still involved uh, as a parent. I'm not. And um, tried like the devil is saying. But uh, part of my program had to, had to come... One of the things I had to come to the realization about was that I, I, this, the person who brought that child into my life was very unstable. And it, it, to put it simply, the, the way the laws are written right now, if you're a presumptive father... If you're not going to take on the actual fatherhood role, you have to walk away. There's there's no being the nice uncle. There's no being the good friend at that point. Other people could adopt the child, but I couldn't without um, having to keep a very toxic and very sick person around me and my family. Uh, it got to the point where I was, she was threatening to go to the police and make allegations against me every time I didn't want to do what she wanted me to do. So I had to step away from it. Oh, uh, the question was, can I talk about the fear that I have? I, I'm literally just terrified all the time. But you, you said I, that when you, when you stopped eating, that it, it seemed to exacerbate it, and 
When I stopped eating, I, I tried to throw myself first into other things. I became very good at working. I became very good at going to meetings, um, doing my step work and so on. I would every once in a while literally stop where I was. And sometimes I would sink to my knees and sometimes I would just put my head against the wall and I would just say, I am so scared. That was the one feeling that I think I was trying to get rid of more than anything else. And that I, I probably should have talked about it more. That That's actually where... You know, my definition of a higher power comes in for me. I'm scared because I think I'm responsible for all of it. I think that every every bad thing that happens to me is my fault. And I, the truth is that I, it's not. Sometimes it's not even a bad thing. It doesn't match up with my plan. You know, and that that's what I. You know, I, I early on in program I, I told my sponsor I started praying. I was really proud about it, and I said um, I started praying. He says, "Okay, what's the prayer?" And I said, "I'm praying to God to show me what my real body looks like." And he said, "Why don't Why don't you just pray to God that you'll do His will, know His will, and, and do it the best you can?" I mean, that's what I have to be reminded of all the time. I, I call my sponsor up all the time, and he he says to me, "You know, have you prayed to God and asked what God's will is? Not what you want, but what is God's will?" And and I, I, for a while, I said, you know, you only have one answer. He says, you only have one problem. Um, no, really, it's, it's, I'm terrified because my attic brain tells me I'm responsible for everything that goes on. I'm responsible if I'm happy or not. Um, my attic brain tells me I am just a biological organism. And if I want to have any rush out of life, it's about orchestrating the chemicals in my brain to give me that rush. I forget very quickly that I am a spirit. You know, I'm, I'm the thing moving the body, not the body itself. And that those experiences, those rushes, those joys in life are mine by birthright. I don't, I, I have to care for them. I have to shepherd them. I have to, you know, live a, 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 a good life and do my part and be of service. But I don't have to take on the responsibility of making everything work. You know, I don't have to become magic. I don't have to magically orchestrate things. I'm already alive and I already have so much available to me. Um, but again, my brain will tell me I'm small. My brain will tell me I'm just this or just that. And that makes me afraid. Because how can, how can one little organism, you know, make anything wonderful happen without something helping? So. Uh, the question was, you know, talking about, I, I feel like I have to be the, per- the best, the perfect Academy Award winner, the Nobel Prize winner, and, and um, what do I do to combat those thoughts now? I will say the serenity prayer at the drop of a hat. I mean, the second I find myself expecting a lot of myself, I will, I will take a deep breath. Um, becoming centered and aware of my breath is one of my, my first kind of calming techniques. Um, and I say the serenity prayer. And I focus on the idea that God wants me to be happy. That God... that, that God would like me to be successful and joyous and free and that that's not going to come by beating myself up until I'm perfect that I have to practice accepting the joy that's around me in order to get comfortable accepting the next round of joy and the next round and the next round I have to be um, you know I, I definitely have those days where I overschedule because I'm still trying to do everything in the world according to my plan. 
and you know the the way I experience it is when when my shoulders touch my earlobes, it's time to go to a meeting. Um, and there's not you know and there's nothing. I think it's easier for people in like the AA program than us because if we we can go on a binge and it's not quite as disastrous. But I do try to remember that you know we don't use no matter what that there is no promotion, no date. Uh, no, you know, new toy that I want to go buy. There's nothing more important than me staying abstinent and staying in touch with what God wants. So even if I think, oh, if I don't do this, I lose this promotion, and then I won't own the company in ten years. Um, you know, I take a deep breath, and I remember it's all in God's time, and that the only thing that I have to do today is be grateful for what I have, do my best, and keep that practice going. You know? Because if I get into bitterness and if I get into anger and resentment, I'm not going to accept it. Even even if the prize comes, I won't be able to deal with it. I won't be able to, have, to enjoy it. You know, I have to enjoy what's in front of me, and that proves to God I can enjoy something better. Thank you very much.